We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Tommy Hackett from Hackett's Bar. Afternoon, Tommy. Good afternoon, Liam. How are things? Thanks very much for talking to us today. How are you, are you keeping well? Yeah, yeah, flying it, thank God, yeah. And uh, thanks for having us on. No worries at all. So anyone that's been scanning through their Facebook may have seen some of your virtual gigs and you would have been forgiven for thinking you're actually in Hackett's Bar because the graphics were terrific. Just tell us about that and how that came about. Uh, Liam, I'd love to take full credit for, 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 for the actual gigs, but uh, I'd have to... Uh I'd have to be honest and say that the, the idea itself um, came off the back of uh, Tony Clear. Tony uh, is is uh, the lead with um, with our lo- local band. They're a regular outfit in Hackett's uh, Loose Change, and uh, I suppose at the start of the uh, the lockdown, uh, he had the idea of um, doing some gigs online, which was quite. It seemed to be the the thing that most musicians were doing, but he just took it to a step. Uh, for and uh, he came up with the idea of actually uh, virtually imposing them in, into some screenshots below in uh, Hackett. So um, we, we, he he done five uh, in a series, and uh, one generated some money for the Good Shepherd. We had a Tom the, the Tom Waits tribute. Uh, he also had a John Martin tribute night, and then he finished off a series of five. Um, which looked like it was live from uh, Hackett's Bar. Uh, so all credit to Tony. He had uh, Jerry Maloney uh, assisting him on uh, Cardine, Conan Doyle uh, on bass and vocal, and Tony on lead and vocal. But they were all actually, um, they were all situated well socially distanced from their own homes in three different parts of uh, the city. So uh, yeah. it was very interesting. We got great feedback from it, and it was it was a great way for us um, to let people, you know, keep us fresh in, in, in Kilkenny people's mind that we're still here and, and, and raring to go again. Yeah, it was unreal. The graphics were terrific. And I mean, yeah. uh, you couldn't have got better musicians either. When you first heard the idea, did you think to yourself, God, will people buy into this? You can't beat the, you know, the live gig in the atmosphere. Did you have your doubts at the start? Uh, of course, yeah. But I, I mean, I, I trusted in Tony. Um, Tony is, without a shadow of a doubt, a perfectionist. Now, the technical side of things lean for me. What, what I suppose when it was explained to me, you you you'll probably be more aware of it um, yourself uh, in the, in the industry. But right. you know, if either of the musicians were off by a millisecond, as Tony stated himself, to, you know, it's it's uh, not too bad if you're waiting on a bus. But in the music world. Um, it's a disaster, mm. and uh, they had Hugh Roberts in the background, uh, which was probably their unsung hero, and Hugh was was thinking the whole lot, so that the three musicians were in time. So it is, um, it is far more than 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 just a live gig. I mean, the the, the organisation in the background, um, it was something that I couldn't even, I don't know, I, I, I couldn't comprehend myself, but they pulled it off excellently, and uh, from there they, they they got a huge following. And uh, there was a bit of banter in the comments, and uh, it was actually, to say it was like a virtual pub would be an understatement. There was potato sandwiches being handed out, and there was no toilet roll in the toilets, and there was great banter that went along with it with our, with our own regular customers and, and, and what the lads brought with it. So, yeah, it was great. Great yeah. fun. And a great reaction as well. You just touched on what I was going to say there. The Facebook reaction, the comments, the comments seemed to be booming. People loved it. Yeah, really did. Uh, like I said, it, it was uh, it was a build up over five um, five sessions. It was actually it was actually to go live on Saturday night, um, but unfortunately, for the first time in the set of of, uh, 
of, of five gigs. Uh, Saturday night didn't happen uh, due to tech reasons, and it was redone mm. uh, on the Sunday night. So, um, all credit to to, uh, to the lads, and all credit to everyone um, who tuned in. We had a competition, um, music-based competition, over the course of the uh, session, and uh, yeah, it was most enjoyable. Loose Change have their own uh, Facebook page. Um, so for any it, it is uh, it's still up on that Facebook page it's still on Hackett's uh, page and it's still on my own personal page so if anyone missed it there's a highlight session on any of those three pages and there's also the, the, the full gig um, is, is still there for, uh, for anyone who'd like to tune in and watch yeah, just watch competition is obviously over, Liam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can still watch the gigs online if you want. They're still there, I think. Yeah, but, yeah they're uh, still there. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, that I think maybe drew people into it was like you have your Spotify's and all these pop artists and all that. But the fact there was a local face behind the videos and you could see them, it felt like you were in the pub setting. And oh, that's Tony from down the road, or that's I know Conan. That personal feel probably was was a real attract was really attractive to people locally. Yeah, and there was that whole, um, you know, there was the whole, uh, the, 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 the attraction of it. It was something different. Like I said, it was quite popular for most musicians to do some live videos uh, from from their own homes. And uh, But that, 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 that idea from Tony's kind of separated from everything else to put them in, in, into a virtual... Uh, uh, virtual stage in, in, in Hackett's was just... Mm. It was one step ahead of everything else that happened. And uh, I'm glad it really worked out. Uh, from both parties it worked out well for me and it, it certainly worked out well for the lads the, 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 the talent that they have and the genre of music the wide genre of music they can do they went everything from Nine Inch Nails across all genres John Prine uh, got, 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 got well uh, tributed to and like I said John Martin all, all, all different genres of music were uh, were on show so Mm. Yeah, it was brilliant. Even for someone as illiterate, illiterate in music as me, the, the talent was obvious to see. Uh, obviously, down there, you pride yourself on music and you're almost like a music nursery. Can you see this going on? Like, we don't know how this COVID-19 pandemic is going to develop, but could you see this becoming a more regular feature? Uh, I'd certainly love to. Um, I'd certainly love to try the waters with it again, um, even if, 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 if the pubs were, were reopened. I'd like to, you know, I haven't mm. spoke to Tony fully about it, um, yet, but I, I, you know, with screen and, and 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 different things, I definitely wouldn't like to uh, be leaving our musicians behind. I'd love to find a way to um, feature them in 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 the pubs. How long mm. uh, we're going to be without music in pubs is, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty with with yeah. with, with with what's going on at the moment. But uh, yeah, certainly, as you know, to to to, to see what happened uh, last Sunday evening would, would was definitely exciting. Mm. And it was uh, definitely social media being used for good. I mean, I know you'll never beat the live bar setting and, and the gigs and all that, but the fact that in a Facebook comment section, kind of everyone's part of the conversation at one time, it re it probably added to the banter as well and the enjoyment. 100%, yeah. We had, uh, and we did di di different watch parties, which maybe, okay, if we were doing it again, I was, I, 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 I was, uh, probably the one that instigated that which kind of took maybe 20, a group of 20 away from the actual uh, occasion but look we, we, we learned from each, we learned mm -hmm. from the um, from the experience um, but like that yeah it was It was. I could really, you could almost hear glasses clanging in the background and little shuffles of people in and out and it really was uh, a virtual uh, a virtual uh, situation 
and for such a it's such a, ta- a sad time and people have lost loved ones but even there is brightness in the darkness and the fact that these are on social media now you know the internet footprint it's it's going to be there forever it might entice people to come to Hackett's the real venue when when pubs do reopen yeah, well, look, we're hoping, um, of course, uh, look, uh, front and foremost in, in, in our minds from day one, uh, from the Saturday, the, 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 the 14th, our, our uh, priority was to make sure to put the, the public and the staff safety in mind. Um, and obviously, it's, it, it, you know, it's not something that we're, uh, that anyone could have envisaged. We're only two years in down there. But, um, interestingly enough, uh, Kenny people done a... Um, Kenny people uh, had their own online poll over the course of the pandemic and you know in a, in a very very competitive field they don't have to tell anyone about the OS of pubs in, in Kilkenny we were, we were happy to I suppose uh, finish second there so mm-hmm. uh, only behind Kittlers and, and giant second with the front room so uh, we're in a good position we're in a good state we're going to uh, try and make sure we hit the ground running when uh, when, when we reopen again and, and like that you know was the challenge is to be adaptable it has to be done without music we have to find new innovative ways to try and bring people in but as soon as we can get going the live gigs will be pumping back out onto Parliament Street Absolutely. and maybe in two years time if the Kilkenny people want to do a poll we might just be be top of that poll next time around you never know I wouldn't doubt it at all before we let you go and we're going to actually play a tune from the lads in a moment as well to get them out there on the air uh, you touched on it there any idea when there's going to be a return to Hackett's in any way shape or form obviously the whole packed pub thing mightn't be a thing until 2021 but have you uh, plans in place or anything in mind uh, look personally an opinion and I wouldn't you know I'm not there to criticise anyone but um for me, a pub is, is for socialising and not for social distancing. So, as long as there's social distancing involved, there's going to be a question mark over, mm. you know, what we can do or in what way. Look, and I suppose the other thing is, 48 working hours in in the life of this pandemic is a huge time. It's a long time. If you were interviewing me last Friday, I probably would have been talking to you. Friday morning, I would have been talking to you about the August 10th and I would have been yeah. talking to about two metres and, 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 and readjusting the pub so I mean on on, on, on Friday evening that all changed so um, looking at the positivity of the other businesses around town opening yesterday and you know people really are looking to get back um, get back to some, some shape of um, normality three weeks is, 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 is a long time to be commenting on uh, I do feel that 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 um, you know, we'll 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 uh, we'll all look back very shortly at uh, and and uh, clap each other on the back and say, "Well done, good job." But I do, I, th- I think we are over the worst of it, and um, we'll see. We'll, we 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 we'll play it by ear. But our plan at the moment uh, on on last Friday's announcements would be to be open, would be opening on on Friday, um, the 29th, along with the other. Um, pubs in the city. Mm. If that doesn't happen, obviously we'd be looking at the later date of uh, July, but it was a massive announcement and it just goes to show, you know, when everyone gets behind something, um, how, how how we uh, all work together to uh, to defeat COVID-19, yeah. COVID-19, and let's, let's, let's hope we are over the worst of it and, uh, you know, I'd like to say thanks to all our customers who stayed involved with us. We've had a huge amount of support online, uh, in the background with phone calls, um, 
we're looking towards the future um, positively and uh, look our condolences goes out we've all been touched by a family member or a friend or even we've been touched with some customers that you know maybe wasn't COVID related all the time but you know people who've been buried in, in, in sad circumstances where there was no um, public allowed to the, to the funeral so, so the reality of that will uh, will drive us forward to a, a happier Absolutely. Absolutely, Tommy. We want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We wish you well with getting the pub back up and running uh, in the near future. And uh, look, if there's anything we can do for you, we want to support local. That's what we're here for. Just let us know. But thanks very much for joining us on the programme. Very much appreciated, uh, Liam. And I know your next guest is is, is Michael Fenley. We'd like to just wish him well in in his retirement and best of luck to him uh, going forward with his challenges in, in, in Offaly. He's been a great Irvin to Kilkenny, Ireland, so a uh, round of applause to him, Bula Bus. Absolutely. Tommy Hackett, thank you very much. Thank you, Liam. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. And we should be joined on the line by former Inter-County referee Brian Gavin. Afternoon, Brian. Afternoon, Liam. How are you? No bother at all. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Um, for, I want to talk to you a bit about refereeing and how you got into that because we get a lot of athletes and sports players on here and they tell us why they love the sport, but we don't get too many referees on. But before that, I'm sure you played in your early days. Um, how was that and uh, how did you get on a club level and what was your upbringing in Clara? Well, I suppose we, we were probably predominantly more football, would you believe, Liam, mm. and uh, art school here in our, our secondary school here in Clara quite successful actually in football in particular uh, we would have won in a couple of All-Ireland Vocational School titles and some Leinster titles and I was lucky enough to win two Leinster titles with my school in, in football and, and, and one then with Offaly in Vocational Schools but I suppose hurling was always my love um, it's difficult when you're coming from a predominantly football club but we won some minor B titles and eventually worked up the grades and actually we won a Junior Hurling Championship in 96 and mm. I was actually suspended for the final leave. <laughs> and uh, I was after No, surely not. That, <laughs> that time, Liam, um, you, 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 if you miss, or if you were sent off, you would miss maybe two weeks either hurling or football. Mm. And uh, I was sent off in a junior football game, so I missed the county final in junior hurling. And my other four brothers were hurling, so the five of us would have been on the team. So to say I was dejected was uh, an understatement. But eventually then I was quite young that time and in 2003 we won the Intermediate Hurling Championship I was in goal so I, I was I was there thereabouts I wasn't a superstar mm. in either hurler or football but I, I suppose I could read the game maybe something like my refereeing ability and yeah. uh, enjoyed me enjoyed me playing career growing up in Tarry won a lot of underage titles as well and uh, you know a mediocre career I'd have to say but uh, enjoyed it mm. and was it that success that swayed you towards the hurling because I'm sure there was plenty of people in your ears trying to get you to play the football what's someone for you in the end? Well, see, Cartage Buckley and Tara here, who was a very good referee, refereed all Ireland semi-finals in football. Mm. He he was referee in football, and he, you know, he says to me there probably more of an opening when I went down the refereeing route. There was probably better potential or more room to become a hurling referee. Uh, no, I did love the game of hurling, and I uh, it was the game I really loved because it's sort of in our generations, even on my mother's side, there was good hurling uh, stronghold. So. Uh, I went down the hurling refereeing route. Uh, I suppose starting off refereeing, I was only 19 or 20 doing an odd challenge game. And I didn't intend to take up refereeing. I was like anyone in my day. I was asked to referee a challenge some evening in the field when no one else was there. So mm. uh, Cartage Buckley happened to be at that game and thought I'd done quite well and asked me would I consider it. It was a shortage like there is in every county. So 
So I pursued it and went to my first under game one time, an under 12 game out the road from me in a barbarian's jersey. I hadn't even the right gear and a police whistle. So <laughs> I started off very raw, but uh, look enough, I escalated very quickly, you know, so yeah. I never really looked back. So I take from that you kind of fell into it, but was there ever any doubt in your mind, God, like if I become a referee, there's going to be there's going to be plenty of abuse shouted at me at matches or, you know, people, you're not everyone's friend when you're a referee, let's put it like that. Was there any of those doubts in your mind when you were making the decision? I suppose when I started off, um, I, I was only probably 22 or maybe 20, 21, maybe I'd say mm-hmm. starting off. Um, like, and I was 23 or 4, would you believe, a referee in a county senior football final, Edenderry and Road, <clears throat> and which would be, you know, a huge rivalry. And, you know, the likes of Peter Brady was playing, the Finbar Cullen lads that had won Leinster titles. And you'd think it might be a little bit intimidated, but, you know, I got on very well. It was actually a draw, and I refereed a replay. And the following two years, then I'd done the senior hurling final between Burr and Ballyskinock, and that was a real good Burr team that time. So mm. within maybe a three or four year period, Liam, I was very lucky. I had done a senior hurling and football final uh, mm. in, in my county. And I think it's. Or any referee that tries to get into your county, your your own county is hugely important that you try and get a county final, whether it's hurling or football. And uh, I had done one of each, and I suppose I broke onto the national panel then at provincial level. And again, Wicklow and Carlow in the hurling match in minor hurling wasn't a huge appetite, and trying to round up four lads to go into umpires of a Saturday to Wicklow. So it's like anything; it starts off very slow, and it's only the few that really get to the top. Then eventually, you know. Mm. But it's a long, tough road, that's for certain. And is there? We'll start maybe at the club level. Is there much of a, a difficulty trying to get into referee club matches at the at the very start when you're just starting off? Well, you see, that time, as I said, nearly like a lot of counties, there's there's a shortage, and when you, I was still playing at the time with Clareboat mm. and hurling and football, so it was predominantly underage games, and uh, I suppose ref the minor final, which a good few people saw me reffing because it was on before the senior final and probably the next year then you start refereeing adult games and you get a good feel for it and, and I suppose the big thing is Liam when anyone is starting out or advice for anyone is, is try and get good lads which as in umpires mm-hmm. and you know I started off with sort of, I suppose four lads that were my friends and one was my brother and you know they were only to be honest with you and they'll say it to themselves these days they were only Midland, Midland umpires so I had to yeah. change them when you get into the inter-county panel but you know, it's club level starting off, it's, it's, it's daunting because if you survive, probably, it's nearly like anything, if you survive the first year at club level, you'll probably stay refereeing. It's the drop-off point after two or three months when you're thrown into your first few games hmm. and you get a lot of abuse and hassle and the next thing you say to yourself, well, this is not for me, yeah. you know, and you're gone. And that's the big problem in GA or any uh, sport with refereeing. And when you're picking your umpires and you, you obviously know them on a personal level, is there that, obviously it's the same rules of the game for everybody, but is there that a dyna- team dynamic there where you know if I do this, you have that team bonding and that, that understanding of each other that if such and such a scenario com- happens, we'll do that. And is there that kind of mindset going between you that you kind of know what to do in a certain scenario? Is that team bond there? Well, it is, and, and, and the more experience you get and the more comfortable you are with your umpires, the more you trust them and the more they know your style of refereeing. And a lot of referees out there, Liam, would actually have signals that no one in the crowd or no management would know what their type of signals are, if you know what right. I'm saying. Like keeping their arms down if it, we think it's a 65 instead of having it maybe half full. You know, different yeah. little things, maybe p- pointing down in front of them to the square for a square ball. And... You know, telling umpires then on the radio communication at big matches to have a word with lads 
before you have to, and rather than just going in and booking them. You know that's yeah. where. So there's a lot of communication, a lot of things, and the umpires are heavily involved in that. But a bad umpire or two bad umpires could bring you down, Liam. You know that type yeah. of way, and it's very important to get men you trust when you come to the high level. You know. Yeah, and you obviously got men you trusted at club level, and you had to tweak it slightly as you went into county level. How does that process happen? Does someone contact the county board? Do you contact personally? How does that step up happen? Well, you see, people see a, a referee in your county semi-finals or finals, mm. and um, naturally enough, that the referee administrator in your county would be hoping to push on. You know, if it's like trying to uh, someone from your club to go onto the county panel, so you'd be pushed on from your off the administrator. And I was asked to go on, and you go on. What happens? There's a couple of stages, Liam. There's a provincial Leinster refereeing panel, which you start off first, maybe doing mm. minor games and under twenty, and then if you're lucky enough, you go on to the Leinster panel. And then the same with the national. So there's a, a national advisory or a national panel. And then you have the elite referees, as they would have said, or the, the referees. So there's about four levels, Liam. If when, you're, when you come out of your club, there's about four levels, two in your province and two more then at inter-county level. Right. So it's uh, about a four-level uh, system that uh, before you get yeah. to the top, you know. And was it always, obviously you didn't have any intention of going into refereeing at the very start, but as that career went on and on uh, throughout the club championships, were you, in your own head, building towards refereeing inter-county matches? Yeah, as I said to you, in, in club level, I the county finals done in hurling and football, and I progressed really quick, mm. and I think with the minor uh, All-Ireland, you might call him, uh, Kilkenny won the replay against Galway in Tullamore in the minor I think the, John Lee was captain and I'm not sure who was captain for Kilkenny but I was only the fourth official in the drawing game in Crow Park I think it was yeah. 2005 yeah. and um, I'd done the replay in Tullamore and uh, you know that was a huge step for me to be ref in the mm. minor final and I only on the panel maybe a year or two and ref a minor All-Ireland final that was a huge step and the following two years, I would have done some of the big senior games with Cork and Watford that time at a huge rivalry. Uh, did a quarter final one year in Crow Park, there was 72,000 I had. Uh, and another year, then I'd done a semi final in 2006. There was a huge crowd I had as well. So, you know, I was I built for you. Now, I had a little bit of a lull in my career. Uh, and I suppose it leads to my next sort of point that I, I refereed, but I never took it maybe hugely serious or as this wasn't. You know, I was still playing and still enjoying life. And uh, I gave a free again, Donald Cusick, I think it was 2007 mm. uh, or six, in, in the last minute, and Waterford equalised and won the replay. Now, it's for lying on the ball, and it's a free mm. ever since. Uh, now, it was a bit of controversy at the time. But there was a meeting that Wednesday night in Athlone from the national referees, and I didn't go to it. I was in Galway races, which I thought was, in my head, was more important. So, uh, <laughs> I, I paid the price for that for maybe a year or two, you know, so yeah. it was nearly 2009, 10 before I came back uh, at that level, you know, Crow Park had no problem punishing you that mm. time when you stepped out of line, you know, so uh, I, I, I missed out maybe two years of refereeing uh, through my own fault, you know, but uh, mm. in saying that, it wasn't the end of the world for me, it was only really maybe in 10 mm. on, then I really, really knuckled down to Mm. be really interested in refereeing and, and driving forward you know yeah and obviously like with decisions like that for example you're whether you get it right or you get it wrong there's going to be pundits on the television or those in Crow Park that have different views or agree with you or whatever does that get to you and is it the the voices in Crow Park that are more bothering you than the voices on the say the Sunday game the following night does that ever play in your mind at all and who's in not whose influence is more but who's, whose views affect you more 
Well, there's a couple of things in that, you know, and you hear a lot of players and referees, oh, I never look at social media, never read the paper. I, I think that's a complete lie. Anyone that yeah. tells me they don't read the paper or social media on the build-up to a game or after the game, especially now in modern games with phone calls and WhatsApp, of course you're going to see it. Um, there was one time, uh, the 2013 final with, with Clare and Cork, mm. uh, I probably got two decisions wrong in the first half against Clare. didn't know it at the time. But the game ended in the draw. Uh, Donald O'Donovan's fantastic point at the end. He yeah. collided. You were um, struggling to keep your breath in that match. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> that was that was a humdinger, and the replay was a classic as well. But that night, I suppose there was no man of the match in the hotels, and you know the Sunday game tried to fill a lot of the program, and they done it with Barry Kelly in 2012 as well. Mm. But you know, Gerald Lucknan honed in, and you know whatever we were talking to David Gerald or whatever, but. Sherlock Nan, you know, said a good few comments that night that, that wasn't very nice and it wasn't like Sherlock Nan because I had a good relationship with mm. him uh, going to matches and seeing him at matches in Chatham. So they were trying to fill a programme and so it zoned in more on the referee and nearly done the match, which was... Mm. That was the only time, really, I was really disappointed with uh, how analysts done it or what way it was done. But look, you have to live with them. You have to live with the good days and the bad days. And, and, and that was that was there because you're there with your family in the hotel after mm. and the television is up and you can hear these comments and you're sitting there with your family you know but look these things happen it's the same as any situation you know and probably the opinions that matter are those from Crow Pack would you have to go into a meeting the following Wednesday or during that weekend talk about why you made such a decision how does that that work well that works at seminar so uh, the national panel of the referees would meet then maybe every two or three weeks of the Wednesday night mm. uh, in the last couple of years you do some training and then you go through all the video clips of the games and the referees you know among w- with the, the, the committee in Crow Park go through the clips mm. try and get an agreement whether it was a right or wrong decision from some of the matches that were after viewing whether it be National Hurling League or the Championship and we try to get consistency that way you mm. know and uh, but see it's, it's, it's like everything the consistency is so hard when you're so many different opinions and a lot of time we didn't agree with the opinions that was coming from Crow Park ourselves as referees and you know maybe the committee could say it was a yellow card the next thing you have 10 inter-county referees saying no it was a red card and sometimes there was a different opinion so it was never always consistently but mm. it was seminars where you probably learned the most that type yeah. of way you know but um, if you got your name built up as a good referee you probably were allowed that one or two decisions yeah. whereas you're starting off and you come into a big game and you make one or two decisions you could pay the price for by mm. not getting a game for a while you know yeah and we know like refereeing is a very serious job and it's you're never going to keep anyone happy but uh, when I when I thought about getting you on there was one moment as a Kilkenny man that I thought of straight away and I think it was the 2014 All-Ireland Final and uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle going on and uh, Tommy Walsh stuck his hurl out and you got the you felt the brunt of it <laughs> is it true yeah. that uh, after that incident he, he sent you on something in the post or he made some sort of apology tell us about that yeah, I suppose 2011 was me first. This was me coming back, remember? Yeah, after saying yeah, yeah. Blip in seven. So I, I was I was standby referee for Michael Wadden in 10, and I got my breakthrough in 2011. I was sort of referee and well. And uh, I, I said it to myself all week. Uh, the last thing I want now is a shamozzle in Crow Park <laughs> or anything like that. And I said I, I'd get in now and push lads away or, you know. And uh, something happened with Bonner Maher. He'd won a free, and before I knew where I was, there was a few hurls waving around and Unfortunately, Tommy Hurl caught me right on the, the, the nose. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it, it, it's strange because the two doctors came on because 
and I looked at the ground with not many red, you know, yeah. and even you could see Brian Hogan's reaction. But apart from the cut on the outside, I think it was bleeding from the inside of the nose as well. It was a right right bang. But, um, you know, both doctors said to me, you know, it should come off like they thought it was a blood sub. And uh, yeah. I, there was no way I was going off, you know, it was an All-Ireland final. And uh, even though I could see Barry Kelly, someone said after, was warming up the far side to come on. But uh, it was probably four or five minutes of the stoppage, but look it happened and uh, I, I, lucky enough I got home and didn't make too much of a yeah. fuss about it so I'd say about a month later then um, there was an envelope at the house and uh, it was Tommy Welsh's jersey from from the uh, All-Ireland final and it was just a little no and it apologised for what you had done and you know uh, it's a gesture I have on the wall and it's the one thing about you, yeah, and I got to get a bit of slagging about it, especially from Tipperary people in years to come, but it was, it's a nice momentum to have the same if it was a Tipperary one or a Waterford one or whoever, and uh, it's a great memory I have, and I have two photographs underneath it, and I've been afraid, so... Um, yeah. Funny, can you listen to there? Want to give me a bid for it? There, you might pass on the number. Yeah, I will do. I wouldn't be holding your breath though. But I, I, I was actually watching back the pictures this morning, and one thing that struck me for all, people obviously were surprised watching, but there was no one more surprised in the ground than Tommy Walsh because he did not expect to see your face come along when he gave the belt. But I did. No, I, I'm Brian, uh, yeah, I'm Brian Hogan as well. It just yeah. happened so quickly, um, and it was an act. Now. People are still saying, like, Tommy was probably trying to fucking hit someone, which he probably was, but in, in fairness, it was an accident, and uh, I didn't make too much of a fuss out. But I hadn't a clue, Liam, who hit me anyway, so there was no point yeah. trying to investigate it at the time, you know. Yeah, and it never crossed your that. mind to do an never investigation, no? Never crossed my mind once, never crossed <laughs> me mind. Well, look, as far, I knew there was about six or eight players on me, and next thing I got felt this bang, I hadn't a clue who it was. Yeah. what was going on. No, I did hear Owen Kelly telling me who it was, but look, Here's what, it. That's it. yeah, that's it, that's yeah. it, you know, but great memories, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, we won't forget it in a hurry, but um, just tell us, like, this is probably the strangest championship year, if it's even going to be a championship year 2020, they're talking about an inter-county return in October and the club action back in July. As a referee, how would you be preparing yourself mentally and physically for it? Because I'm sure this did not come part of the handbook when you were starting off all those years ago. What did what to do in a pandemic? Yeah, I, I suppose it's like players. It, 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 what could you do? And you'd be ticking around, mm. ticking along in the background, maybe doing your own bit of training. I'm actually nearly doing more training now, Liam, than I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I'd nearly come back into county refereeing, but um, uh, I'd say that's all you could do would just keep ticking over. And usually, you'd have a fitness test. For, for the championship for, for referees whether they'll have one now before they go back in October it's hard to know but I'm sure all referees when the club championship starts back up at the end of July they'll get their match sharpness back through the club and I'm sure uh, they'll up their training coming to October, November and, and be in the right condition uh, for the championship but it is a difficult time for everyone and it'll be very strange to be at matches when you might have only quarter of the normal crowd that might be at it and things like that and people signing in going into matches and buying your tickets online the way we know who's at matches mm-hmm. so it's going to be a whole new strange but isn't it great to get something back and rather mm-hmm. than just scrap the season you know no matter what it is it's great to get it back and hopefully the, the figures will stay down on the COVID and you know we, we learned how to live with this disease going forward you know and how are you finding watching it from the stands now I know you do a bit of media work as well does that sit well with you because I know with players they find it very very hard not to be out in the pitch as a referee is it more that hassle is out of the way now or you really miss the interaction with the players and the whole day that goes with it 
Well, I suppose when, when they announced me uh, that I was finishing in early 2018, uh, the Irish examiner uh, always had a column on referee and, and uh, John Fogarty asked me would I be interested in and I thought about it for a while. And I knew it was going to be a bone of contention because I was going to comment on lads that I was doing the line with or they were doing the line for me. And But the one thing he says to me, look, Rick, Brian, if you want to do it, he says you're going to have to be open and honest. And some of my comments, you know, are open and honest and they're, they're not nice and some of them are very good that lads have good performance and I praise them and more but I have to give it from my version not that I'm mm. gospel or anything but when you're reporting and doing things so it's very strange but I get to see so many matches now at the weekend because I have to cover these matches that are on telly but it mm. is difficult to be honest with you because these are lads I'm after training with and after being in dressing rooms with but you know I have to be honest and fair when I'm doing me column on the Irish Examiner that's what I was when I was refereeing and I don't mean to offend anyone, and mm. some lads probably are offended by it, but it's not on purpose or anything like that. But I think the one area we de- do need to help referees and improve referees is sit down with a midweek someone and go through their games and try and help them and advise them more rather than just having a seminar every three weeks. I mm. think there's a route out there to help every referee to be a better referee and not just leave them out to the media to be cast a gay head around and, you know, give him that help he needs, try to improve him that 10 or 20%. That's all the inter-county lads need to be improved at the 10 or 20%, you know. Same as myself when I was at, you know. Yeah. And has anyone ever approached you about an advisory role or something in the background? Or if they did in the future, would you consider it? Oh, I definitely consider sitting down with a referee and going through his video for an hour, hour and a half. Uh, I wouldn't be interested in Liam what to do now is go to a game and just assess a referee on a one-page document. I think that it's not the answer it's a help and it's a guide but I think if you were to be serious about referee and anyone is that the likes of say James Owen should be sitting down with someone or maybe Willie Barrett should be meeting someone of a Wednesday night going through the video Dickie Murphy could meet someone of a Thursday night go through their video for an hour and a half and try and help the lads out you know every little bit helps you know and that's where we're just falling down I feel at refereeing that the pool at the moment in hurling refereeing isn't as strong as it was and these things happen but let's make them stronger and let's make them better at that 10 or 20%, you know, that will stop the people giving out in the tariff. Yeah, and before we let you go, and maybe you won't be, at, be able to answer this because I'm putting you on the spot, what's your uh, favourite memory? Of course, you've, ma- you've refereed big matches All-Ireland Finals, but have you got one subtle little memory that's special to you that you'll take to your dying day? What What's your, your biggest achievement as a referee or proudest moment? Proudest moment, which I believe, not because I'm on the radio station, but naturally... I refereed a lot of Kilkenny games because they were flying the time I was refereeing yeah. well. But 2013 in Nolan Park will live long in my memory. The qualifier with Tipperary. Uh, that Saturday evening at 7 o'clock throw-in and uh, the heat that was there that night and the crowd that was there. And the crowd that was there that night, Liam, were all passionate GA men. I'm not saying everyone who caused the match is not passionate, mm. but these tickets were hard got for that game. They were through clubs, both in Kilkenny and Tipperary. So you had the die-hard followers of that match the atmosphere that night when Henry came off the stand nearly erupted uh, unbelievable match and it was probably my finest performance remember Pat McEnany and Dickie Murphy coming into the dressing room after me and you know nearly punching me in the chest with delight that that was going to be a tricky game two of these teams that were the best in the business in the last few years were meeting in a qualifier and one of them was going out mm. and they were delighted they actually took me out of the Leinster final I was refereed the Leinster final that year and they took me out of the Leinster final to referee that qualifier in Nolan Park and while I've refereed four All-Ireland Senior Finals, that definitely will live long in the memory. And actually, my father, who was one of my better umpires, 
he was 70 that night and we had a little party when we came home from Nolan mm. Park that night in yeah. Ray Howard's and great memories but 2013 in Nolan Park was my best memory as a referee yeah it was a hot evening and the, the heat was on the pitch as well last last question now before I let you go because you sparked it there did you prefer refereeing in grounds like Nolan Park that were tight or intimate or the big venues like Crow Park or Turles what one did you prefer or did it bother you at all I didn't like Limerick which I believe I found Limerick a long pitch <laughs> uh, whatever I, I found Turles not too bad and Crow Park not too bad but I found Limerick uh, I don't know what it is about Limerick I just found it a hard pitch to get around uh, but in fairness it's it, it a fine the ground is nothing wrong with the ground but I just found it difficult I love refereeing absolutely enough in Nolan Park Turles Crow Park you'd be sore for two or three days after refereeing in Crow Park mm. because it's so firm and the camber on it you know and players like that often tell you that a game in Crow Park could take at least two or three days to recover no matter whether you're a referee or a player but uh, I, I suppose Turles and a Munster hurling final was as good a venue you could get out there uh, but as I said that memory in Nolan Park will, will live long with me any of that for certain Yeah absolutely and it lives long in the memories of Kilkenny fans Brian it was a pleasure to talk to you thanks very much for talking to us on the programme You're welcome Liam no problem That was Brian Gavin there former inter-county referee joining us here on Sunday Music and Sport we are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Kilkenny City, something for everyone. You are in tune with Community Radio, Kilkenny City, number one for local sport. And we should be joined on the line by snooker star Davy Morris. Afternoon, Davy. Good afternoon, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks very much for joining us. And I have to say, lots of people who know me would know me as a Liverpool fan, and the text machine is already saying, are you only getting Liverpool guests on this afternoon? So, Davey, first things first, are you a Liverpool fan? Yeah, I am. I am, indeed. <laughs> so that won't help another us. one added to the list. Yeah. I'm sure you'll be a happy man in a couple of weeks' time if we get these matches played. Yeah, exactly. It seems inevitable now, really, that they'll get over the line, but um, it's a pity it's kind of run out of momentum as... You know, it's almost an anti-climax now just to try and get the last two games out of the way. And obviously as well, with maybe no fans being in the stadium, it'll be probably a bit surreal for the players as well. Like, you know, usually they'd go celebrating with the fans and jumping around with all their family in the crowd and all. But mm. like, that's not obviously not what will be happening now this, at this time. Definitely, and it's just, just the first time in 30 years and the pandemic strikes in the same year, you couldn't write it. But Davey, yeah. <laughs> Davey, on to yourself. Uh, you didn't uh, take up the big ball. You went with the snooker queue and you decided to start playing some snooker at a young age. Tell us, how did that all start? Um, yeah, I used to play a lot with um, with my dad a lot and also with a couple of friends. You know, back when I was maybe eight and nine, we used to go down to Black Mill Street. Uh, it's closed now, the snooker club in Black Mill Street. Um, but that was always a busy place and it was very good for your social life as well you kind of got to make a lot of friends and we used to head down after school every day and play and I suppose for the first couple of years everyone was more or less a similar level but then after three or four years I started to kind of progress quickly and I suppose a bit of the talent came out mm. more than more than some of my friends and you did kind of make the breakthrough at a fairly young age at 16 like getting to a quarter final of a, of a world snooker championship at under 21 level I mean was that daunting at all at a young age because I'm sure there was lads there older than you and probably more experienced at the time yeah um, well see I won the Irish senior championship at 15 so I kind right. of had a good, good mm. bit of self-belief going out into it as in to say maybe anything was possible you didn't know you could lose in the second round or you could win it you didn't really know where you stood because you were playing against players from China and Thailand and obviously with the English lads that age you mm. wouldn't have known too much about them you, yeah. you didn't know where you really stood mm. but uh, obviously when I went out there I got to the quarter finals um, 
but uh, obviously one of the, the best players in the world now I went down to win it Neil Robertson mm. in New Zealand and um, also then I think Ding Junhui was in that tournament as well so he's obviously mm. gone on to win you know over 10 world ranking events so you're in with the, the best of the best in that tournament yeah, and the fact maybe that you didn't recognise all the names, did that make it easier for you and gave you a bit more confidence because, you know, you just saw them as fellow snooker players and you were just taking them on in a match. There was no yeah, f- fear. Exactly. Yeah, you're just, you're, even in snooker in general, you're, you're kind of taught to just play the table, play the balls if you can. You know, not, not to play the player as in mm. other sports, you're taking on a, a direct opponent for snookers. When it's your shot, the table is yours, you know, so you're trying to try mm. do the best for yourself. But, if you're playing someone who's as good as the likes of Neil Robertson, you know, you mightn't get to the table very often. That's, the, that's mm. the problem. You know, in golf, you can play your own golf ball no matter how good your opponent is playing. You're still getting to yeah. play every shot. But in snooker, you could be frozen out for four or five frames and mm. there's not much you can do if someone is, you know, too good for you, basically. Yeah, and you showed promise at an early age. How did the, the next cycle come? Obviously, you came to qualifying for the more major events. Yeah, um, when I was 17, I qualified for the World Snooker Tour, the professional tour. And I played on that for nine years. Uh, my highest world ranking, I think, was 51. And uh, I got to one quarter final of a world ranking event and three or four last 16s of a world ranking event. So um, I got to play with all the all the, the big names, the household names that everyone would know, you know, the Ronnie mm-hmm. O'Sullivan, John Higgins of the world. And at the time, I suppose, they would have been a little bit too good, but you're, you're still only in a learning yeah. process taking them on at that stage, like, you know. But I think, you know, it's great to even say you got to compete with these lads at the same tournament that they would have been trying to win such as the UK championship or the world championship you were playing at the same tournament as in which obviously is a feather in your cap and like we only see for the viewer at home what goes out in the television when we see the world's or the UK snooker championship but I'm sure the standard in the qualifying stages is very very high yeah it is I mean I'd say in the last 20 years uh, the numbers from say number 32 in the world to 100 would be all top 32 players who went back 20 years ago. You know, the standard has from has gone way down the down the rankings. You know, the standard of the world number 80 now is a, is a world-class player where number 80 back 20 years ago wouldn't have been. They would have been quite a poor player. But I think that's just down to the number of people playing all across the world now. I think in Asia alone, they have something along the lines of 400 million registered snooker players where we'd register for golf or whatever, you know. So eventually the numbers the numbers games comes in where they're going to keep producing brilliant youngsters coming from, from Asia. Yeah, and eventually you made the breakthrough and you qualified for a major event in the UK Championship at the highest, one of the biggest tournaments in the world of snooker. What was that like? And, you know, was, did you get much, when you f- qualified first, did you get much time to embrace it and enjoy the feeling or was it straight down to business and prep for that competition? Yeah, I did, I did obviously get time to enjoy it, but I think you're still just looking forward to competing as much as anything else because, Obviously, with the TV and everything, you, you get nice publicity over, but you still want to perform well on the day and perform when you play. You know, over there, you have to, you're on the showcase, really. If you play bad, everyone will say, mm. you know, he's not that good. If you play brilliant, everyone will think you're going to be the next world champion. So you're, you still have a kind of pride of performance to live up to. Yeah. And I think uh, that's always in the back of your mind. But um, it's a good thing as well. It drives you on. It makes you, makes you more determined to play well over there rather than, almost just celebrating that you got there yeah. you still realise you have to go there and that the cameras are going to be on and everyone's going to see how you play so. and of course you have so many people that would want to see you do well as well that you'd, you'd, be, you'd be doing it for, for those people as well Yeah and how did you deal with the, the feeling that the camera's watching you was that ever in the back of your mind if you hit a bad shot oh no there's people at home or there's family watching at home did the cameras uh, uh, disturb your game at all? 
yeah, I'd say I'm probably lucky in the sense that I'm one of those players that I, I don't ever get nervous because of the camera. It'd be more about the result of the match, you know, and it's, it's, I've known other like top players who really struggle with the cameras. You know what I mean? If there was no yeah. camera there, they're a lot better than when they're not. But to me, it's never really even entered my head when I'm playing. I don't get that nervous feeling because of the camera there. I might get a nervous feeling because of you really want to win the match, but it's not because of the camera. It's just because of you want to win and get through to the next round. And I think um, that really helped me the time that I played Mark Selby is that, you know, everyone was saying how to stay so calm, you know, live on BBC and everything when you were playing the world champion. Yeah. I was like, I didn't even, I didn't even think of anything like that. All I was going through my head was trying to get over the winning line. I wasn't thinking about cameras or who was watching or I was just obviously focusing on the main, the main job was to try and get the win when I had a chance. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the year you played Selby, that was the second year in a row you had qualified for that tournament. So, like, you were nearly established, if not established, at that stage. So playing Mark Selby, what was that like? Did the underdog tag suit you? Yeah, I think it definitely did suit me because, um, obviously, I, I would have known Mark Selby a few years before that. Mm. I would have played, played in a lot of other tournaments with him and been, you know, friend, in kind of a friendly circle with him. So playing him, I was like, well, if I can get ahead of him, all the pressure is on him. And I know that some of the top players the likes of Selby he, he knows that I can perform well on any given day and put them under pressure so I, I played very well to get a lead in that match I think I was leading 3-1 and then he came back to 3-3 but I managed to beat him 6-4 from from 3-3 but I think playing someone like Selby is that if you get off to a bad start you're, you're almost mm. done for because they just get stronger and stronger and stronger but if you can get ahead of them you know the pressure is on them to fight back then which he did on the day but I kicked on again after that but it, it's, I think with the top players, you really have to get a, a good start because they don't really take their foot off the gas when they get ahead of you. They, they actually get better and better. So yeah. it was lucky for me on the day that I did get the, the kind of the early blow and give myself a, a bit of a cushion where, you know, if he came back, he could still rescue us from there. Yeah, and Selby's obviously the name, and I'm sure it's a highlight of yours. But outside of that, what else stood out for you from playing in the UK Championships? What what will you take back, take home with you and in years to come reflect on with, with uh, fondness? Yeah, I suppose the arena itself, mm. it was played in the Barbican Centre in York and they have it set up for snooker where they have, you know, all the kind of television lights and the background lights and the whole presentation of the arena mm. is, it's mind-blowing and it's it's one of those ones where it's live on BBC for, I think it's 10 days, so they really put a lot of money into it to make sure everything is perfect and I think pretty much every session, which is three sessions a day, the morning, afternoon, night, where all the tickets were pretty much sold out mm. and it just shows how well it gets supported as well, so... I mean, you get the buzz of playing in front of maybe, I think it was around 1,000 people or 1,200 people looking at the three or four tables in the main arena. And you, you're one of those tables, so you can feel the kind of electricity in the air. Like It's, it's one of those things that for anyone who hasn't been to a proper snooker match in a, in a big arena, they don't realise how much theatre it, it feels like. You know, It's not just a sport where everyone's cheering and shouting, but if you actually sit there, you can feel the nervous tension and you can feel the relief of the crowd when people get off. Yeah, it's just... It's it's a different feeling, mm. but it's one that people really enjoy when they go and see it themselves mm. for the first time. Yeah. Uh, just someone, slightly off topic, someone's texting, uh, asking you, will Judd Trump take the mantle over from Ronnie O'Sullivan, and will Ronnie's 147 in just over five minutes ever be bettered? So what do you think of that? Have you ha, have you had much dealings with Ronnie, and how do you see his uh, future going? Has he le much left in the game, Ronnie O'Sullivan? Yeah, I think, well, I think Ronnie has as much left in the game as he wants. He's mm. still, in my opinion, he's still as good as he ever was. It's just whether he actually wants... Uh, kind of determined enough to win the tournaments that he plays and he definitely still has the game I mean he, he still makes century breaks for fun he doesn't even look like he's trying and, he, and he's making centuries so he has the game but uh, it just depends how much he really wants to fight it out because 
you're, you're going to have to win a few scrappy matches here and there to win a world championship. You're not just going to play mm. your A game all the time. But uh, I think he'll, he could definitely win one or two more, no problem. Mm. But uh, with Joe Trump, I think, yeah, he is the, the, the best of the new generation. You know, he's, he's probably, without a doubt, the most talented. But now he's probably the most successful of the last three or four years. You know, he won six ranking tournaments this year in one season, which broke the record of Stephen Hendry, who won five in, in one season. Joe mm. won six this year, and again he has the kind of the game to even when he's not playing well he can just flick into gear and then he's away and he's hitting top form he's, he's so natural you know Yeah. but um, I'd expect him to kind of be number one for a while yet really yeah and like we're talking about names like Judd Trump and Ronnie O'Sullivan have you noticed in your experiences playing the game what they do differently to the, maybe it's a bit unfair to use average snooker player but the snooker players that yeah. aren't at the very very top what's, what's their secret what's, what sets them apart yeah, I'd say the number one thing is they're just their, their belief in their own ability. Like, Judd looks unbelievably relaxed nearly every time mm. he plays. Ronnie looks like he's nearly asleep around the table, pot yeah. balls. You know, he comes so mm. easy to him. They're just, they're just in their comfort zone straight away. And it's not comfort with the TV or anything like that. It's about their own game. They're so comfortable with their own game that everything seems very easy. And, of course, as well, like, when, you know, when you get to the top and win a few times, it becomes easier to keep winning. You know, you, you know how to do it. There's like a, you know, if you see it even with like Tiger Woods and he was winning everything, once he won a couple, he was winning everything. He just needed the first few and that's what happened with Ronnie and Judd once. They won their, their tournaments when they were 17 and 18. Then, you know, winning checks for 200,000 or 500,000, what Judd won last year for the world. Mm. It doesn't seem like anything. It's just another day at the office because they're so used to it, you know? Yeah. But I think the number one thing without a doubt is how relaxed they are and that comes from the confidence in your own game they just seem like they're in you know there's no stress involved in their game whatsoever mm. which is a, a very difficult thing to do because as you mentioned there there's a lot of money involved and if you don't have success in maybe two or three tournaments back to back or you don't get as far as you wanted to it, can, it probably can get very very frustrating yeah exactly I mean I would say probably 80% of the professional tour like they're all earning pretty good money but if you have one bad season then you're under pressure for the next season to make mm. that money back or you know you're you have real life bills to pay and things like that so you can't afford to have too many bad seasons in a row you see guys who are on the tour for 20 years and you know they were in a good steady living but maybe their last four or five years playing didn't go so well and now they're you know coming to the end of their career and their money is not where it should be you know so it's kind of one of those one of those things that while you're earning it it is obviously very good money but you have to stay earning if you have four or five bad years you know you're kind of putting yourself in a little hole that's, mm. that's kind of that's the, the downside of it but I would think with you know the top 32 players in the world are all earning uh, an excellent living and they're getting sponsorship from you know all the Chinese tournaments that are played I think there's 12 or 13 Chinese tournaments and the prize money is huge in those events because of their uh, the, the Asian market that, 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 that the kind of betting that goes on over there for the Asian market so I think the, the snooker in Asia is really where all the money is and where it, go, where it would definitely be in the future as well as in Asia yeah, and you, you you climbed the hill, you conquered, and obviously you've done it at home as well, claiming underage honours in Ireland here, but you've won the the uh, Irish Snooker Championship as well here. What, how does that compare between the highs of the UK Championship and then winning it here domestically? Is it just as satisfying or is there is it a different type of feeling? Yeah, I think definitely the Irish Championship, the, the Senior Irish Championship, is definitely still one of my best achievements. I've won it four times now and I still think it's really prestigious because it goes yeah. back to like the 1940s and no matter what goes on like even the likes of when Ken won the world championship in 97 like he he's still very proud that he won two Irish championships mm. you know he didn't get to play in it that often because 
he um, he moved uh, moved to England and turned professional, but he's still very proud to say that he won two. Like I have four, and I'll always be very proud to say I have at least four. Hopefully, I win a few more in the future. But the one thing is that you know you, no one can take it away from you. People can say you know you won, you know that's the last seen at the UK. And again, it's it's nice to get that far, and you know I got to a quarter final of the ranking event. But to say you actually won a big championship like the Irish Championship is something that you have to treasure. Otherwise, you're you're at nothing really because that's as high as you can get in Ireland, you know. Yeah, and what's next for you, Davy? You're you're obviously still tipping away. What's what's on the agenda when all this pandemic stuff is over? Yeah, well, hopefully now I get a chance to defend this year's Irish Championship because I won it last year in May, but obviously it was all, all the snooker season was cancelled since mm. March this year. So there's talk of it being put back on maybe in October. So mm. hopefully that'll be the one that I'll I'll be able to defend again. Mm. I've stayed practicing over the whole pandemic thing, um, so. You know, it's it's one of those things where you just hope you get a chance to to kind of win it again for the record fifth time. Because there's, there's two people, myself and Martin McCrudden, have won it four times. So I'd like to be the first one to to win it five times. Yeah, and that's driving you on. And finally, before we let you go, have you have you a vision, or how do you see snooker adapting in 2020 with this virus? Because there's no signs of a of a vaccine. So obviously, sport is going to have to change it up across the codes. How do you see snooker looking? Yeah, I think snooker might be okay in the sense that you there's actually a tournament on the TV now, um, the, the Championship League, and that's yeah. played behind closed doors where you have the, the two players and the referee, and everyone has been tested that week and gets tested each week. So at least you can still play the match and televise it. The only thing is mm. it's probably not great for the players in the arena because it's just mm. it's obviously a dead atmosphere. There's nobody else in there. But for the people mm. at home, at least you can actually sit down and watch snooker. If you, if you are a snooker fan, you can watch Ronnie O'Sullivan or Judge Trump play where you know it's better than having no snooker on the TV mm. at least I think the snooker is one of the sports that you know you can still broadcast it properly without mm. having a big crowd there in live attendance you know and is that big because obviously if you're going to a hurling match or a soccer match the crowd is up throughout the 60 minutes or the 90 minutes or whatever is the crowd yeah. big in snooker because obviously they have to be silent for a good part of it yeah no it is big in snooker definitely I mean you, you see over the years with Jimmy White and Ronnie the, the, the support that they have and so many players have said that they just felt so intimidated by having 2,000 people in Wembley cheering for Ronnie against you you know even though he's the favourite and you're the underdog you still have everyone supporting the favourite which is quite unusual and he said it, a lot of people just said that it was so overwhelming that they couldn't so in a way the crowd is a big thing for the likes of Ronnie who everyone loves everyone loves watching him play that they just want to see him see him beat you so they're saying you know he's feeding off that crowd where I think without the crowd it might be a better chance for the underdogs to beat the likes of a Ronnie or a Judd because you know maybe the, the top player won't get the adrenaline buzz from playing in front of the crowd you yeah. know and, and the, other, the other player won't be affected by the pressures of playing in front of the crowd so I think it could make it easier for lower ranked players possibly to you know bring some surprise results yeah, well, I think we're all craving some live sport at the moment. Davy, very good to talk to you. Appreciate your time and thanks for joining us. That's great. Thanks a million. No bother. Davy Morris there, snooker, local snooker hero here in Kilkenny. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM.